Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. In this series of lessons, we're going through these last chapters of Matthew, uh, walking with Jesus from the upper room to the empty tomb. I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Ever heard that? Not that uncommon. I don't know if we can quantify how often it's used, but we've all heard it. It's a very convenient way to dismiss the claims of Christ. And there's something the world seems to relish anyone wearing the name of Christ when they do something improper or immoral or illegal. And they're very quick to call them out. And what often follows is something like this. Well, if Christians act like that, then I want nothing of it. I'll live as I please. Now, those of us who love the Lord and his church, we may have some answers to that line. Maybe something like this. Yes, there are some people in the church who are as phony as reality TV. But there's also phony doctors, and we still go to the doctor when we're sick. Or there's phony politicians, and we still vote in elections. While there are phony Christians, nobody's saying that we should follow them. Jesus Christ is the one to follow. He's perfect. Or here's another answer that we might share to that line. That Christians are not claiming to be perfect at all. Remember the time Jesus went to eat at Matthew's house? Cooper read that passage earlier in our worship. The religious leaders were criticizing him for going to the house of sinners and tax collectors. He said in Luke 5, 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, if the charge of hypocrisy applies to everyone who is imperfect, then we're all hypocrites. To say I don't go to church because there are hypocrites there is like saying I don't go to the hospital because there are sick people there. That's why it's there. That's why you've got it. When Zig Ziglar was told the church is full of hypocrites, he replied, well, come with me anyway. There's always room for one more. <laughs> and then one author said this, something you and I have both witnessed. The spiritual hypochondriac that enjoys his sin and is not trying to get better. Not really thought about that, but that's true, isn't it? And our arguments don't always answer every criticism about hypocrites in the church because the fact is, sometimes you're a hypocrite. Sometimes I'm a hypocrite. We can be guilty of that. So rather than coming up with some kind of clever excuse for a line, I think maybe our attention needs to be more, our focus should be more on living an authentic life for Jesus. During the final hours of Jesus' life, he encountered outright hypocrisy. And that's what we're going to look at today. Last week, we were in the garden where Jesus prayed and then the scene ends. The story ends with him being arrested. So this next section in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is taken to the courtyard of Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was the high priest. He had been appointed by the Roman government. So let's kind of follow Matthew's account. The verses are going to be on the screen. You might prefer to read it out of your own Bible in your lap. But let's see how Jesus responded to two different kinds of hypocrisy that he met there in the courtyard. And I want us to contrast the hypocrisy of men with the genuineness of Jesus. 
And hopefully we can be motivated to live lives of authenticity. So first, let's look at the hypocrisy of Caiaphas. Matthew 26, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now, Caiaphas was supposed to be the spiritual leader of the Jewish nation. He was the mediator between God and man. He's the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. But he also presided over the Sanhedrin, that court of 71 elders who would decide legal matters for the Jewish nation. But Caiaphas had a vendetta, a personal vendetta against Jesus. He had been looking for a way to take Jesus out. In fact, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, John's gospel tells us, John 11, verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Now, we are very familiar, even today, with hatred and scheming in politics. We understand that. But I want you to notice six violations of justice that Caiaphas made. Very quickly. Number one, he ordered an improper arrest. Jewish law stated that any arrest for a capital crime must be made during the daytime. Jesus was arrested at night. Number two, Caiaphas presided over an an illegal meeting. No Jewish trial was to be held after 6 p.m. until 6 a.m. Not at all. But the Sanhedrin hastily gathered in the meeting at night. And then in a phony little step, they waited until dawn to pass their verdict. Number three, Caiaphas knowingly permitted false testimony. Look in chapter 26, verse 59. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So they're welcoming liars into the courtroom. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, to be fair, Jesus did say that. You might remember that. But he wasn't speaking literally of the temple. He was talking about his body, that once they killed him, he would come back to life in three days. Well, number four, he forced incriminating testimony. Verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is this these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. See, a, a presiding judge is to be neutral. But Caiaphas was anything but neutral. His animosity toward Jesus was so strong, he could not restrain himself. Look at verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he's trying to force Jesus to incriminate himself. Are you the Christ, he asked. Jesus said to him, you have said so. 
It's not a stretch to assume Jesus' answer caused murmuring through the Sanhedrin. One commentary I was reading said that this next line, Jesus had to raise his voice as he continued. Verse 64, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then number five, Caiaphas manipulated a guilty verdict. Look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. You know, in that day to rip your robes, as it mentions here, was a gesture of righteous indignation or an intense anguish over sin. And there is no way that this, this was anything other than melodramatic for Caiaphas. And especially notice that he's acting like he's standing up for what is right. He's acting like he's appalled at this sin. This very act was so hypocritical. Because at the same time, his heart is full of hatred. He's thinking, finally, we've got him. And he's acting like he's so righteous. What a sham. And then number six. Caiaphas tolerated abusive power. Verse 67, then they spit on his face and struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? We've all seen videos where an out-of-control police officer, after they arrest the criminal and have them in handcuffs, where they will strike them or, or kick them after they're down. And, and there's no excuse for that. Even a police officer will, will tell you that. But Jesus here is totally innocent. He was not a criminal to be punished or arrested. I don't think Matthew is describing the soldiers at this point. I think he's talking about members of the Sanhedrin who were spitting and striking him and slapping him and asking these questions. And then Caiaphas, who's supposed to be the spiritual high priest, going right along with it, pretending to be standing up for what is right, for what is good, Pretending that this was good for the people of the nation. See, I, don't, I believe nothing turns more people off to Jesus than Christians who are being hypocritical. We may think we're faking it. We may think we're tricking people, deceiving people. But perceptive people can tell if you are really walking with Jesus. If you really believe what you say you believe. Or... If you're just pretending, I need to share something for the, uh, the class that I teach in the fireside room. I'm not going to be there this morning. Uh, the Lord spoke to me in a dream last night, and he told me that I needed to make the most of this sunny weather. We just got one more good day before the rain comes. And so I'm going to take the afternoon off, and I've asked John Simmons to speak, and he's going to teach a class on putting Jesus first. Perceptive people can tell when we're being phony, right? If we project a walk with God that is not real, if we talk about Jesus when we're not, it undermines our credibility. People see through the farce, and it turns them off from wanting to have anything to do with Jesus. Karl Marx almost idolized his father. But when Marx was a teenager... He was so appalled at his dad's religious hypocrisy 
His father was Jewish, and he came home one day and announced to the family, from now on, our family is Luther. Don't ask any questions. We're in Germany now, and it is to our advantage. Karl Marx didn't know what to do with that statement, but he never forgot his father's expedient change of religions. And he later wrote this, religion is the opiate of the people, and his writings so affected millions of people. And you can't help but wonder how much of that was spawned because of the hypocrisy of his father. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That was Caiaphas. He's acting like he's doing it for the good of the nation. He's saving the people. Nonsense. It was all about his own vendetta. That's Caiaphas, and sadly, sometimes that's me. And sometimes that's you. Well, there's another example of hypocrisy that occurred in the courtyard, and this one was Peter. So let's look at the hypocrisy of Peter. Now, Matthew said that when Jesus was arrested, verse 56, all the disciples left him and fled. But evidently, Peter didn't go far. Because he winds up following the crowd, and he's there at the courtyard of Caiaphas as well. Now, Jesus, you remember the story, had told Peter that before the the rooster crowed, Peter would deny him three times. Look at Matthew 26, verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You are also with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Now, keep in mind, this was just minutes before this same Peter pulled out the sword and took the ear off. Remember that? But now, it's a whole different Peter. Kind of lost his nerve. Denies Jesus. Verse 71. When they went out into the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know, what the, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Think about what's happening here. Peter is guilty of a reverse hypocrisy. See, Caiaphas was pretending to be more spiritual than he really was. And here's Peter in front of this crowd pretending to be worse than he really was. And this was not normal for Peter. We read nothing in the Gospels of of Peter having a habit of cursing. We read nothing in the Gospels of Peter wavering in his faith in Jesus. In fact, what we read about him is saying, I'll never forsake you. But if that's what it took to appease the crowd, Peter would do it. And Christians today are not exempt from the same kind of reverse hypocrisy. See, our world holds in esteem. Have you noticed this? Anyone who is worldly smart... And experienced. If you've tasted the world a little bit, if you've lived a little bit, there's a certain mystique to the one who is edgy or rebellious or wild. When I was in youth ministry, I learned of a phenomenon 
called the lobster syndrome. You ever heard of this? Put lobsters in a tank or a bucket, and if one of them tries to crawl up the side to get out, the lobsters at the bottom will, will pull it back down. And the idea was some teenagers... You know, it's kind of like the bottom effect. And if one of them tries to make the right choice and do the right thing and, and try to do good, the others don't like that. And so they try to pull that teenager down. That's why you read about some teenagers faking uh, ignorance. They don't even try to make good grades. Or they participate in activities or, or something that they, they don't even want to do. But they do it to be accepted. And in college, you think they'd be beyond this. But at that age, so many think you're a prude if you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't do drugs, you don't sleep around. And in business, if you're just so honest that you can't fudge a little just to make the deal, you can be considered uncooperative or too stiff or too rigid. And you might even lose your job. James Dobson wrote about a wife who went to lunch with 11 other women. They were taking a, a French course at a local college. And so they all went to lunch, and this rather bold lady asked a question to the whole group. How many of you around this table have been faithful to your husbands all of your lives? She was telling her husband that night about the question, and that only one woman raised her hand. What he was appalled about is she didn't raise her hand. But she said, oh, no, I, I've been faithful. He said, well, why didn't you raise your hand? She said, I was ashamed. I was afraid they would ridicule me for being too straight. I wonder if she heard the, roast, the rooster crow. You know, to gain favor in the world, the game we play is this reverse hypocrisy where we play the game of, of hiding our better selves, and we pretend to be far worse than we really are. Maybe more worldly wise and experienced than we really are. Elton Trueblood wrote this. It is curious that we are more afraid of being sanctimonious than we are of being wicked. Let me read that again. It is curious that we are more afraid of being sanctimonious than we are of being wicked. Many of us... Would, would hate worse to be called a saint than be called a sinner. We may never boast of our virtue, but we're extremely prone to boast of our vice. I know a man who is a teetotaler, but when he goes to certain parties, he carries around a champagne glass full of 7-Up with a slice of lime on the glass. It's just easier that way, he said. I wonder if he could hear the rooster crow. See, some of us may fall to this, that we want to appear sophisticated and worldly and accepted like those who are in the world. And we wouldn't be embarrassed for those same people to see us pray or read scripture or sing praises enthusiastically. See, the motivation is no different, public approval, to be seen and liked by others. John's gospel tells us, John 12, 42, nevertheless, many, even the authorities believed in Jesus but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. The next verse reads, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, I, I see at least two negative consequences to reverse hypocrisy. One, it destroys your influence. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. How are people going to see Jesus in you if you're always pretending to be more wicked than you really are? And the second negative consequence is you may become the person that you pretend to be. Like the man who spent years in the police force working undercover on the vice squad. He spent so much time in that drug culture that eventually he became a part of it. He was arrested for using and and dealing cocaine, finally arrested. He wrote this, I got so confused, I did not know if I was a police officer or a drug dealer. And then he said, I played the role, and then the role played me. So you can play the role of the world, but eventually you don't know who you are. And the people around you don't either. Now, contrast that to Jesus. Jesus was on trial for his life, but he demonstrated, even in that heat of the moment, authenticity. He wasn't concerned about impressing people. He was determined to please his father. So when he was asked the question, even if it could cost him his life, Jesus spoke the truth. In fact, he died for the truth. He calmly spoke the truth and showed us all what authenticity is all about. And really, that's what he's calling us to do, really, is to live a life of truthfulness. Hebrews 10.22, look at the wording here. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Don't pretend to be better than you really are, and don't pretend to be worse than you really are. Just be so transparent that the light of Jesus can be seen through you. That's what authenticity is all about. It's not you that's crucial. It's Jesus. So I think for all of us, we need to pray for the Lord to help us to be real. And I will just admit, this is, one, to me, one of the hardest things about being a minister. I struggle with this all of my life because there is in the minds of some... This, this thought that preachers are always pious. Always. That's why I don't go around just always saying, God bless you. Because that's what, the way preachers are supposed to sound, right? Or calling every man brother or every, every woman sister because that's the way preachers are supposed to talk. Or to say, I'll be praying for you just as a response if I don't specifically have a plan to pray for them. I want to be real. It's so hard. But you need to know that your elders and your ministers have the same struggles as everyone else. Pride, greed, lust, complaining. And not just a struggle. Sometimes a fall. Stephen Brown said a woman from his church came to him and said, Preacher, there are a lot of preachers who say they are sinners, but you're the first one we believed. (laughs) Once while shopping in public, Robert Redford was asked by a woman who approached him, Are you Robert Redford? And he said, Only when I'm alone. Think about how sad that would be. If you're only your true self 
when you're by yourself and all the other times you're acting. When I think about this church, who we are, what we are to be about, what should our goals be, you know, we're to be people of faith, people of truth, people of love, people of kindness, people of generosity, every turn just trying to shine the light on Jesus. Can we add to that list authenticity? People who are real, people who are transparent, no pretending and not ashamed. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Phony, pretentious people are so unattractive. They're so off-putting. When we see that in others, it's all we can do just to be around them. Even more so when that's a Christian but conversely, a person who is authentic and genuine and real, if they believe in what, even if you disagree with them, if they believe in it and they want to grow in that, you respect that about them. You appreciate them being true to their cause and what they believe in. It was said of the early church, Acts 2, 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes and ate together. Look at the wording here. With glad and sincere hearts, true hearts, genuine hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the next phrase, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's why they had the favor of the people. It's an authenticity. Let me share this part of an email sent to a minister. I'm new to this church. And it's easy to see that it has been and is now a very special place. I admit that when I decided to visit, I was not at ease at visiting a so-called rich church. The very first visit erased every doubt in my mind. I sat there for an hour, not seeing affluent, powerful people that attend church and not really hearing your sermon, sorry, but just taking in the awesome sight of hundreds of people Bowing their heads, praying. Hundreds of people were there because they wanted to be, not because they had to be. And when it came time to sing, nearly everyone sang, not just the pe people sitting on the first couple of rows. It was fabulous. It demonstrated to me right there that this group of believers were for real. See, I would not have joined this church because of the fabulous sermons or a large crowd or nice programs. No, the only thing that really mattered is the one thing that you should be proud of is that we are walking with the Lord, listening to him as he explains it all to us as we're walking toward the goal. If we keep doing this, we will continue to be a very special place. Authenticity attracts. Phil Donahue kind of paved the way for daytime television. But before he had his talk show, his early years, he was a reporter. In his autobiography, he tells about a time when he was called to a mine disaster in Appalachia. He said it was just horribly cold. And of course, the rescue workers were trying to make their way down the mine shaft, and all the family and friends had gathered at the opening of the mine, and they were just trying to comfort each other, waiting to hear some kind of good news. He said, all of a sudden, someone in the crowd started to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. A few others joined in, all our sins and griefs to bear. Finally, the whole group is singing, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. 
And after the song, this older preacher stepped up and led a prayer for the whole group. Phil said it was a brief prayer, but extremely moving and beautiful prayer. But the problem was, as he shared, that they had the camera going this whole time, but it was so cold the camera froze. So he didn't get it on film. So he held the camera over the barrel of fire, warmed it up for a moment. It kind of came back to life, but by then the prayer was over. So Donahue went over to the man and said, that was a beautiful prayer, but would you repeat it so that I could get it on film? The preacher said, but I've already prayed, son. But Donahue said, sir, you don't seem to understand. I'm not a local reporter. I'm from CBS News. Your prayer will appear before 200 stations. The preacher said, I've already prayed. It wouldn't be right to pray again. Wouldn't be honest. Donahue wouldn't let him off the hook. Sir, if you repeat this prayer, millions of people will get to see this on CBS News tonight. The preacher said, no, thank you, and walked away. Donahue said, I was furious and dumbfounded. Actually, in the book, when he called his producer, there's a few choice words that he called that preacher. And then he writes, months later, it hit me, and I thought, it would take Donahue months later (laughs) to figure this out. But here's what he wrote. In a world of posturing and religious pomp, here was a man of God who refused to perform for television. His prayer had already been offered, and repeating it would have been phony. No matter my pleadings, he would not do a take-two for Jesus. May we never be guilty of showbizing for Jesus, to be real, to let other people see in you someone that Jesus is doing an amazing work. Not that you're perfect, but they can see Jesus in you, real, authentic followers of him. In 1990, just a few years ago, archaeologists discovered the tomb of the high priest, Caiaphas. And amazingly, they found the ossuary with Caiaphas' bones in it, still there, amazingly kept. Most of the people in Jesus' day believed Caiaphas in this moment. And we understand why. He was the high priest. He was the spiritual leader of the people. He was so decisive. He was so powerful. And nobody believed Jesus. Who wanted anything to do with that shameful criminal hanging on the cross? They found the bones of Caiaphas. But you know the story. Three days later, when they went to Jesus' tomb, he was not there. Just as he said, he was telling the truth. You take down this temple, it's going to come back. And the other line that he shared, do you remember what he said? One day the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven. And that's true too. Our song of invitation is to encourage you to say yes to Jesus. He's coming back. He's preparing a place now for those who are his. If you've never confessed your faith, 
We want to give you a chance to do that. If you've never had your sins washed away in baptism, we want to give you a chance to do that. We want you to say yes to him. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?